Hey folks, welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. On this week, I'm actually bringing you an old episode. It was actually one of the most popular of the year. So if you missed it, you might want to find out why so many other folks um, did seem to enjoy it. And it's my conversation with Bridget Todd, who is someone that I have so much admiration for. Part of the reason that I wanted to bring this conversation back into your feed again is because Bridget's brand new miniseries just dropped this week. That is season seven of the IRL, Online Life is Real Life podcast. The name of this season is People Over Profit. And again, it is looking at balancing the upsides of artificial intelligence with the downsides that are coming into view. Bridget is doing amazing work around helping us understand the very, very broad implications of what it's going to mean for AI to be ubiquitous in society. So there's a link to that new miniseries over there in the show notes. I would highly recommend you follow that show if you're not doing so already. Before we hop into our conversation with Bridget Todd, I also want to remind you that if you are interested in learning more about AI, starting this November, I have a three-part series with Chapters International. It's an online workshop series entitled Centering Equity in the Era of Generative AI. You can join me on November 2nd, 9th, and 16th. If you'd like to register, the link is in the show notes. Now, on with the show. Hi, welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I am really excited about this week's episode. Uh, I'm going to tell you all about a very special guest who actually, if you are a longtime listener, or even if you've listened to just a handful of episodes, you've heard me talk about today's guest. So it brings me so much genuine joy to bring you a conversation with them. Before I introduce the guest, I do have just a touch of business. Pride and Less Prejudice, the nonprofit organization that you've also heard me talk a lot about on this show, will be participating in Give Out Day. That's happening from June 1st to June 28th. All funds raised on Give Out Day will go towards sending LGBTQ inclusive books to pre-K to third grade classrooms helping Pride and Less Prejudice promote and spread positive representation in classrooms across North America. Not only do they need your support, but they need us to help spread the word. So if you are listening and you have heard episodes featuring the founders of Pride and Less Prejudice, I'll link to them in the show notes. I will also link to the work that Pride and Less Prejudice does over there in the show notes. Please tell your friends and family all about the work that they do and encourage them to head on over to the website for Pride and Less Prejudice to sign up for their free newsletter to learn more about the work that they do and more about ways that you can help support them throughout the month of June. 
Now on with this week's episode, which features Bridget Todd. Now that's a name that you likely recognize if you've been listening to this podcast for any duration of time. That's because I just cannot stop raving about what she has done with her podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet, which I will remind you is just one of her critically appraised shows. Bridget Todd is also the communications director at Ultraviolet. Folks, you're going to find a link for Ultraviolet in the show notes because that is also an amazing organization to connect with. Bridget got her start teaching courses on writing and social change at Howard University. Since then, she's trained human rights activists in Australia, coordinated digital strategy for organizations like Planned Parenthood, the Women's March, and MSNBC. Bridget Todd is the creator and host of iHeartRadio's critically acclaimed podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet. Formerly, she co-hosted iHeartMedia's Stuff Mom Never Told You podcast, bringing feminist issues to 2 million ears a month and hosted a global salon with Afropunk, where she talked to high-profile women like Ava DuVernay and the Me Too creator, Tarana Burke. Let me tell you a little bit about that show, There Are No Girls on the Internet. If you are unfamiliar with it, I actually want to say, stop what you're doing right now, pause this episode, head over to the show notes, follow that show. It is hands down my favorite podcast. So let me read you the description of that show. Marginalized voices have always been at the forefront of the internet, yet our stories often go overlooked. Bridget Todd chronicles our experiences online and the ways marginalized voices have shaped the internet from the very beginning. We need monuments to all the identities that make being online what it is. So let's build them. I am so excited that in this episode, we talk more about the platform that Bridget has built, what she does with it, and how listening is at the foundation of all of that. So if you are talking to your students about just how important it is that we grow our capacity as listeners, I think this episode is for you as well as for your students. Enjoy. There Are No Girls on the Internet is not only just this critically appreciated, applauded series as it should be, but you also have such a loyal fan base, myself, of course, included. But I, I'd love to start our conversation sort of going back quite a few years. You have spoken about how you found your way into activism while teaching at Howard University. And I'm wondering if maybe you could point out for us sort of a pivotal moment in those earlier days in your former life as a teacher and organizer that taught you that there's huge value when we sort of place dialogue as this agent for change. So just to kind of rephrase, all of my questions are really long, so I'll try to give you a summary of each question. How is your show a product of lessons that you learned as sort of like an earlier version of Bridget? I love it. What a good question to start with. It, it, I love it because it really takes me back to a different time in my life. Um, I loved teaching. Teaching was my whole life uh, in an earlier iteration of who I was. I had a personalized license plate that said, love to teach. Like I was that person who lo just loved being with young people, loved being in front of a classroom. But at the same time, I knew that I wanted more from my life, from from what I from what I was able to do. And this was, you know, um, at the tail end of the Bush administration. 
it was a time when I felt kind of civically and politically disempowered, right? Like there was a lot going on in the world that I felt, you know, angry about or made me feel stuck or disempowered or unheard or unseen. And at the time, I didn't really have any kind of real avenue to express that other than going onto my Facebook page and writing a long ass Facebook status and then clicking send. And then all my friends who felt exactly like I did would be like, yeah, you know, that was, it wasn't really doing anything. And so my, I, I, this is a time where my voice felt very, like I wasn't really using my voice in the way that I could. At the same time, I was in the classroom at Howard. And I don't know if you know much about Howard University, but it is a university where the students are so civically engaged, so activist minded. And I remember, I will never forget my student coming up to me and saying, oh, Professor Todd, will you sign this petition? We're trying to get the university to stop using this specific brand of toilet paper because that brand of toilet paper also funds private prisons. And we don't think that's cool. So we want to get a petition going to get the university to stop it. And I remember thinking, these are young people. These are people who are 18, 19 years old, and they feel like their voice really matters. They feel so empowered to go out and change their circumstances. And they're not letting the fear of, will this be successful? Will I be heard? Will I be screaming into a void? Any of those nagging little questions that I was really letting, you know, letting get get to me and, and, and keeping me stuck and keeping me disempowered. And so really, I feel like I learned so much from my students in, in the classroom about how you just push through and the power of using your voice. Because, you know, Howard students, they really had the power to speak up and, and create change on campus and in the larger community. And so I feel like I really learned a lot from them in terms of not being afraid of, you know, whatever message you want to put out there, not sounding exactly right, like not letting that fear keep you from speaking up, which I think for a long time I did. For a long time, I didn't know, you know, I could just feel like I wanted to put my voice out there, but I didn't know how. I didn't know the right way. I didn't feel like I had the tools or the or the know-how to really do it. And so I it so that time teaching was so instructive. And I I really carry a lot of those lessons um from the classroom, I hope, into the show that I make now. It makes perfect sense to me because, you know, I think that often, especially in higher education, there can be that power dynamic of the professor already knows everything. So how dare you, young person, come and try to, uh, you know, suggest something to this person who's in a position of authority and your show is constantly reminding us, listen to the marginalized don't discount voices who are speaking up and are trying to push for change or warning us that we might need change. Um, my second question, I almost feel guilty asking this of you because I know the way that you have to engage with news um, and the online ecosystem as someone who's constantly pushing for platform accountability. You have to be online in ways that I imagine must be quite stressful. You know, as someone who is just following the news, I think sort of like an average citizen, I feel like the news cycle is getting faster more amped up, angrier, the algorithm knows it can suck me in by making me feel a sense of outrage. So as much as I often try, like, Trisha, don't do the doom scrolling thing, I still do it. Um, you know, I, I tried to do less and less of it, but I'm, a, I'm kind of preferring to get my news from podcasts. And I think, I hope that storytelling and journalism like your show 
starts to become an avenue for folks just because I think what happens is I slow down. Like I literally have to listen and I find myself not necessarily, you know, like making an assumption based on the headline, but I really have to be absorbing someone's perspective. You've covered so many important stories and and sometimes even inside of an episode, you'll grapple with like, I wasn't sure if I wanted to cover this. I wasn't sure if I wanted to amplify what this person was doing. I'm wondering if you can speak to listeners about that decision-making process and what guides and informs how you use your platform. Yeah, what a good question. I think for me, it's really not being afraid or shy about occupying the space of not really knowing, of not like there's an issue happening that I'm not an expert on, or there's something happening where I don't really know all the details and I need someone else to help me understand. Um, I try to make content that's accessible and that does not assume any level of expertise because oftentimes I feel like that's what shuts marginalized folks out of conversations that really they need to be not just included in, but centered in. And so I think part of it is letting letting my own lack of knowledge guide things. I don't know if that sounds a bit weird, but, and, and I think, you know, it, it's it kind of, it's pushing through the fear of looking uninformed because if you don't know, somebody out there who's listening also probably doesn't know. Um, and then so much of how I, I find topics for the show and things I want to cover really comes from not just doing the thing that is so tempting as you spoke to the seeing the emotionally charged headline and being like, that needs to be the story or like, I am outraged. I'm going to react to this. It's so easy to get caught in a trap of being reactive, but really trying to pull back the layers and say like, well, what's the other conversation happening around this? Or what's the, what's the unseen conversation? What are people getting into in the comments that I need to know about? Um, really when I have those moments of um, emotional charge, being willing to push through them and then ask what's beneath them. I feel like those are often where the, the stories are. And then also just like listening to my audience. So often people will say, hey, have you heard about this thing happening? Or like, I need some, I would love somebody to uncover this or unpack that. Um, and so, yeah, just being willing to, to buy the ticket and take the ride along with the listeners, I think is really important. I want to like slightly gently complimentary pushback in that I think you are almost downplaying some of your expertise, you know, and I've had Melissa Ryan has been on this show. Sabrina Joy oh, has been her. on this show. Love her. And, you know, everybody talks about, of course, your leadership, your vision, the knowledge that you do have. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering, again, like having worked with Planned Parenthood, I think you understand how moral panics can be manufactured in ways that the average, the average person does not necessarily understand. And I'm I'm just sort of thinking like what you said where, yes, you're bringing the listener along in a way that's sort of like learn alongside me. And I'm thinking of episodes where, you know, you were talking about Amber Heard. And I remember at the time I kept seeing this in my feed and wasn't really understanding what's going on with that. Um, you know, another episode that you did about the Free Britney movement that like I completely had no idea about kind of like the grassrootsy nature of it. So I'm wondering if there have been other episodes, uh, you know, as you said, you're trying to be responsive to your listeners where you have heard back from them in terms of, you know, that it did change their view on something or it did point them to an issue or a topic or a new understanding that you felt like it was such a strong audience response of like, wow, you are really doing a good job to put a spotlight on something that folks aren't talking enough about. 
Yeah, I have to say, I mean, you 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 mentioned it earlier, but probably one of the most the two most complicated stories I've ever tackled were both stories that I initially did like thought I shouldn't tackle. One was Amber Heard. Um that was an episode and a topic where I felt like I didn't live my values a little bit. I I was a completely like a low information you know, person when it came to that story, I didn't really know all the details. And I completely let social media, particularly TikTok, so I completely let a TikTok algorithm shape what I thought I knew about that that case. And it was one of those things where I was like, well, everybody's making content about this. Certainly everybody is not, you know, getting it wrong. Certainly everybody is not being snookered by, you know, misinformation or selectively edited content. And when I actually sat down and looked, like I remember it, it was a real internal struggle. Like I remember uh, within the organization where I work full time, Ultraviolet, we had an internal conversation about how to respond. And that really prompted me to like, do you know, do my own research. And I realized, I think that I have been misled into thinking the situation is a lot more complicated than it actually is. And so in an effort to sort of correct that wrong and also take the audience along with me, I really had to do some internal looking and digging as to why I was why why I had it so wrong and why I had it so wrong to the point where I was like, well, I don't even want to get get I don't even want to make an episode about it. It's too risky. And I will say it was probably the episode that I got the most extreme feedback from both people who were like, this was really clarifying to me. I didn't know half of this information. And then other people who were like, you got it completely wrong. I cannot believe that you got this so wrong. But I think, I think that was a good thing ultimately, because if you don't make content that challenges both yourself as a person who makes things and your audience, it's almost like you're not trusting either of them. It's like I wasn't trusting myself to put my voice out there on this issue. And I also wasn't trusting my listenership that they would be, that they would come along for that ride, whether they thought I was correct or not correct, or they aligned with what I was saying or not. I wasn't trusting them. Like, I, like there's such a, such a relationship of trust building in the podcast maker and listener relationship that I almost feel like that was a time where I wasn't really allowing for that trust to bear out. And it was a real mistake. Um, another one was the episode, it was a two-part episode I did about um, Lena Dunham and the um, kind of viral allegations that Lena Dunham sexually abused uh, her, her sibling. And again, that was a story that has been a nugget inside of my head for like 10 years, right? From different, from so many different iterations of my life, from working at MSNBC and seeing how every time you posted anything about Lena Dunham, that like the comments were all like, oh, she did this to her sibling, she did this to her sibling. Um, and, and and knowing, like, like kind of watching how that unfolded. And so I knew it was going to be polarizing. I know that people have a lot of feelings about Lena Dunham. I also have a lot of feelings about <laughs> Lena Dunham. But kind of like what you said before, when we let moral panics and when we let emotionally charged, like intentionally emotionally charged conversations take the lead, we don't have the conversation that needs to be had. So we never actually got to have the real conversation about what happened and what it means and all of that because of, you know, it being turned into this politically motivated panic where every, where, where it also feels good to pile on. Like, 
that's a weird emotional thing that humans do. And so I really, again, kind of trusted myself as a storyteller, trusted my audience as people that I have hopefully cultivated that are interested in in, in being on that journey with along with me, that, you know, we can peel back the layers of intensity and political, politically motivated anger and emotionality and really talk about what is actually happening. And I think that's so important, especially for conversations that are happening online. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, listeners of this show who work in K-12 education, I think this is something that we are grappling with all the time because, you know, teenagers having a very robust online world. And as you said, like, you know, I remember even going back like over a decade ago when it was the debate over what color is the dress and how emotionally charged something like that was. And I love the modeling in your show where it is sort of that curiosity around why does this message keep popping up? You know, why is it that I know so much about these folks, about these issues? How is it being, again, just like manufactured to be a part of my media diet? Who benefits from that? And actually, what can I do as a quote unquote digital citizen to say, let me research that? Um, and I'm really fortunate to work with a number of people who are trying to almost have like this information literacy renaissance with students and say, now is a time that we absolutely need to be bringing a critical lens to everything that we are coming across. And I'm kind of very aware of this generative AI moment and how I think this is really going to be almost like a second chance for us. You know, like when social media first blew up, I don't know that we tapped into those skills in the way that we should have done with students for ourselves. And yet again, I think like ChatGPT is asking us like, okay, are we going to be really thoughtful of content that's coming into our feed and aware that you you can literally produce moral panics. Um, and I, I just love that your show so often does sort of say this issue that you're hearing so much about, let's dig into it. Let's, you know, not just, you're right. It is so easy for folks to think, I know the story because I've seen 17 different headlines. And Trisha, I have to say it makes the I've often asked things like, what gives you hope in this work? It is young people. And then the fact that there are people like you who are working with young people and, and like kind of trying to create this blueprint for how we can have these conversations. Because one of the things that really worries me is that we have a generation of younger folks coming of age online at a time that is very complicated and tricky and full of minefields and complexities that we just didn't, that I didn't have when I was growing up, right? Like when I was, I definitely grew up online, but when I say I grew up online, I mean, I was spending time on X-Files message boards and stuff, right? And like, you know, being like a, like ASL in, in AOL chat rooms, right? It's completely different today. And so I think that we need people who are able to have a clear-eyed understanding of all of the beautiful ups and also kind of terrifying downs of our current internet experience so that they can really help younger folks understand that too. Because I don't know, I just feel, I worry that we're in this period where a lot of the older folks who are meant to be helping the younger generation figure stuff out, they just don't know. They Or, or they're, not, they're, they're not yet understanding how tricky the internet can be and how much young people are living their lives online, how how IRL and online are basically one and the same in 2023. And I think that 
we are we have done our young people a disservice for kind of a while by not really getting that. And I'm I'm grateful that there are people like you who are able to sort of right that wrong. Oh, well, I mean, I I will take the compliment. Thank you. Uh, but I I think honestly, I look to voices like yours who are having that ba that balanced conversation of saying a platform like TikTok. Yes, that has, you know, allowed for so many different marginalized communities to find one another. You know, I, as a 40 something year old, I am on TikTok. I, you know, it's like me cranking out my dog videos. I love your dog TikToks. <laughs> They're so good. But it's, it's like, that's my internet joy. But I will say I also, it's incredible, like the queer independent bookstore TikTok corner um, and to see what's happening with those communities is great and yes at the same time understanding how that algorithm can be slippery so has youtube's for a very long time um and i again i think your show just constantly balances that because i do think educators do a disservice to sometimes say like oh TikTok is just like dance videos right and nonsense and it isn't and you know if you are around my age group and you don't feel comfortable getting on TikTok, that's okay just even asking i think like tell me what you like about it like what are you learning about because it has been those conversations with young folks where they're telling me about really key issues where that's a space they're going to learn and in some cases, that's a good thing. In other cases, it's not. But um, again, I, I really just think you model having that balanced conversation and not discounting that, as you say, like IRL and online are separate because, again, we see, you know, we've seen such a very clear indicator that these two are linked in profound ways. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that, of course, your show, There Are No Girls on the Internet, has won awards, listeners. It's up for another one right now. I will be linking in the show notes where you can go and vote for it. Oh my gosh, thank um, you. Well, it's it's constantly, you know, whenever um, a big uh, sort of like a legacy media puts out one of their best of podcast lists, like you know, it's 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 listed there, and for good reasons. Um, you know, I I do think in order to move towards a more equitable inter internet and imagine what that might look like, we actually do need conversations like this incredible archive that you've built. And I think the model of the one that you're providing, I say this because I really, as I listen to your show, I listen to someone who's demonstrating listening skills like that, that curiosity and intellectual humility that you mentioned, it comes through in every conversation that you have. And I know it's kind of like a counterintuitive question for me to ask a podcaster what's informed their listening practice, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask because I truly think you're one of the best storytellers out there because of the way that you listen. Um, you know, you're so compassionate with your guests. And I'm just kind of wondering, what is it that you've done to grow that capacity? Is that something you've had to be really intentional about? Or is it something that's just sort of been a value for you all along? Oh, this I okay. So this might sound like kind of a nerdy answer. Um, it is it's a, it's a it's always been a value of mine because in my life I have felt unlistened to and unheard a lot. And there's nothing I find more frustrating than that feeling of I'm just not being heard. They're not they're not getting what I'm saying. And so hey, I know it sounds nerdy, but I actually took an active listening course, a course in active listening. And so I learned about how you actively listen and it kind of goes back to that old pulp fiction quote right do you 
do you listen to listen or are you actually waiting for the other person to stop talking so that you can talk? And I realized that I think that for most of us, myself at the, at the time, very much included, we are waiting to talk. We're not actually taking in what someone is saying. And so in my active listening course, I learned about how you can train yourself to be a good listener, how you can listen to what someone's saying and then say it back to them in your own words to make sure that you got it before you move on, how you can slow down and really process what they're saying. And I know it's, it might sound nerdy or woo-woo, but it has really helped. And I feel like it is it is it shows up in so many different aspects of my life, not just podcasting, right? If you when I'm having an argument with a friend or a partner, being able to demonstrate like I am actually listening to what you're saying. I'm not just waiting to to respond or react. And I think that as a podcaster, it's I just think that it's a medium, you know, we're, we both do it. It's a medium that invites slowing down. It's a medium that invites curiosity and why, and asking why and asking leading questions. And I feel like if you're not doing that, you're kind of missing out on, on, on the power of the medium and why, why it's such a powerful, a powerful practice. Right. And so it's definitely something that I hope shows up in my work um, because it is important making sure that people feel heard and that they're, you know, I just can't stand it when you go on a podcast and the host is asking questions and then talking over them and then pivoting the the conversation back to them or something. It's like, well, you've invited this person here because they know something. Let's find out what it is. Why don't you let it breathe for a little bit? Let's process it together, you know? Yes. And I would say on top of that, you're one of the few hosts who will also sort of readily say, like, I didn't know that. Or even asking for, like, you know, I want to make sure that I understand what you're saying. Can you clarify? And I just, again, I think it's such incredible modeling. And you have me wondering, because, of course, you have a brand new podcast out, Beef. I'm kind of wondering if, again, your your background and your kind of passion to grow yourself as a listener. And I'm really happy that that's the answer, I think, especially for this show where we're all about education. I think it's a great message for young folks. Yes, listening is hard, but you can get better at it if you, you know, if you really kind of push yourself to do that. So I think that's a great message. But I'm wondering if maybe that's in part because your new podcast, Beef, is such a pivot from your normal podcasting realm. And I wonder, is there something there about like these contrasting kind of kind of um, debates or again rivalries where it's like, let's really listen to the strengths of each? I don't know. Is that kind of what interested you in, in producing beef? Ooh, that's such a good connection point. I hadn't, I hadn't put that together, but I think that's, I think you're onto something because there is so often, so I, I'm fascinated by rivalries, historical rivalries, pop culture rivalries, that so fascinated by them. And so often we dismiss them as like, oh, they had a petty beef, a petty, a petty argument, petty disagreement. But when you actually look at some of these rivalries, they actually are rooted in things like, oh, we had very opposing values or like this person had, was very clear that their value was X and this person was very clear that their value was Y. And you see how often these rivalries, for better or worse, really drove people to have, you know, innovation or better ideas or to level up in ways that I don't know that they would have had they not had these rivalries. And so I think that there's something about rivalries and examining how they came to be that I think is art is grounded in people really being super clear and very 
like set in their ways and their values. And that's something that really speaks to me, I guess I'll say. Um, and yeah, he hearing that, hearing that out, not just dismissing it as, oh, they just didn't like each other because they're petty. It's like, no, let's let's actually hear what they said about this other person that drove them um, to do this thing in their life or in their work. And, you know, something about the fact that you are such a prolific person who works with young people. It's like, remember when you were young and you had a problem or you were upset and a grown-up just dismissed you, just made you feel like it wasn't important or wasn't a big deal, you're being dramatic. And do you remember the time when a grown-up just listened to you and just made you feel like how you felt was important enough for them to sit down and just listen thoughtfully? Remember the difference in how those two experiences really felt? That That's that's the thing is, is not immediately discounting the way people feel, the way people are showing up, what they value, their emotionality, really being curious about it. That's that's what I think gets people, like, that's what gets us to, to have action and agency and move and, and not just be stuck or not just, you know, push things down. I think that's so important. I couldn't agree more. And yes, that feeling and that being listened to, like, that's one of the ultimate gifts that you can give someone. And like I said, you know, I, I honestly think education needs to do a better job of prioritizing listening skills. You know, many schools have debate, TEDx, um, but I, I'm a huge advocate for what is the messaging that you're giving to students around why listening is so important. And that's, I think, as more schools are experimenting with students having their own podcast, it's a great medium for that. And I, I also just think giving them role models where just observe how this person listens, observe how this person invites folks into conversation. And that's why I'm so happy to have you on the show because I cannot think of a better role model in terms of just like really amplifying the art and craft of listening. Um, and it's so great to hear that that's, at least I'm getting the sense that kind of is at the foundation of what has made your shows so successful. They, you, uh, that is, I, I hope, correct? That's my, my goal. And again, if anyone out there is like curious about this, it's a skill like any other skill that you can flex and, and get better around. Take an active listening course, uh, do things like improv. Like it, doesn't ha it, it can be fun. It can be fun to learn how to be a good listener, a good, a good yes-ander, someone who can really internalize what someone is saying. And so I wasn't born knowing how to do it. I learned it. Anyone can learn it. Yeah. And now again, like just so many critically acclaimed shows. Listeners, I have a special playlist if for some reason, even though I have mentioned there are no girls on the internet on this show at least 30, 40, 50 times, I'm going to put together a playlist that kind of connects episodes to different subject areas. So if you are looking for a place to jump in, hopefully you'll find an episode that connects to one of those subjects. Uh, Bridget, thank you so much. It has been such an honor. I feel like I'm just ready to retire my show now. Like, uh, thank you so much. I really, oh, the really pleasure is a hundred percent mine. I'm so I'm so honored to be included and so flattered. And yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. Listeners, please do be sure to head on over to the show notes, check out that specially curated playlist of some episodes of There Are No Girls on the Internet that might match up with the subject that you teach or that a colleague teaches. I also wanted to let you know if you are already a great fan of that show, it is a finalist for Best 
tech podcast with the Shorty Awards. So there's also a link in the show notes for you to show your love and appreciation for the show and Bridget and give them a vote. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you again next Thursday. Thursday.